You're listening to the Root Causing Health Podcast. I'm Nick Andre, and together with my partner Nathan Owens, we are delving deep into the science to answer the question, what causes chronic disease? We'll cover the basics, talk about our hypotheses, and bring you the best guests from around the medical and research community. If you like what we have here, please join us over at rootcausinghealth.com, where you'll find our blog and other resources. You can also support us on Patreon to fund our research and get early access to all of our content. Welcome to the first of uh, our series of foundational podcast episodes, starting with kind of the very basics of heart disease, its definition, and working through to our hypotheses and the varying pillars of evidence that support it. To explain our motivation, it's become clear that a key part of our mission will be simple education on the basics of heart disease. For a variety of reasons, the quality of average knowledge in atherosclerosis varies somewhere on a continuum between a steaming pile of poop and a dumpster fire. There is, one, no uniform definition of the disease, two, poor procedures for performing autopsies and analyses, three, poorly established associations between frequently used surrogates and outcomes, four, a myopic obsession with lipoproteins to the point that non-lipoprotein aspects of the disease are not discussed, and five, for a lack of a better phrase, just general stupidity. To be clear, most of what I will be doing in this episode will be literally a book report. Um, I'll kind of layer my own analyses and distill out the bits of information that I believe are most important to understanding this disease, but this is fundamentally going to be a regurgitation of tidbits I read in a book purchased from Amazon. On that note, I am curious how many professionals in this sphere will find a lot of the information presented in this book report to be novel. I have yet to talk with anyone who is aware of even a reasonable subset of these key observations from pathology as concerns atherogenesis, despite the fact that the book dates from 1989. This begs the question, what scale of dumpster fire in the halls of academia would have to transpire such that the competency in the field of atherogenesis research is decreasing with time? So, one of the key findings, pathology is a necessary component of atherogenesis research. It provides the foundation of our knowledge in heart disease, and without it we are flying blind. We have to do the work to figure out what the disease looks like and how it evolves by looking at tissue samples from dead people, and rigorously reconstructing its progression from time series analyses. We have to be intimately familiar with the ways in which animal models diverge from human coronary atherosclerosis, and therefore the applicability of those studies to humans. That's the only way to start, and without a most thorough understanding, we will most likely set off on the wrong path. For this reason, during this episode and during a lot of my talks, I'll focus a lot on the pathology findings that I took from Constantine Velikin, a renowned pathologist with over 250 peer-reviewed publications on heart disease. The main source I'm referring is his 1989 book, The Natural History of Coronary Atherosclerosis. This was basically the culmination of his career, synthesizing the entire history of research and the most up-to-date findings in pathology as of 1989. 
For a variety of perhaps intriguing reasons, not much has happened in the field of pathology as concerns atherogenesis since the 1980s, so this book is basically as good as it gets. There are no shortage of arguments within the scientific community against the lipid axiom. Um, really, I can't call it a hypothesis because the lipid hypothesis itself is more of an unprovable axiom and or the infinite set of hypotheses that result in LDL and saturated fat being causal by any means necessary. There are sort of six pillars of evidence that support the lipid hypothesis, which I covered in, in the carnivore cast episode we did. One is epidemiological, two are animal models, three are dietary interventions, four are drug and non-drug lipid-lowering therapies, five are genetic studies, genome-wide associational studies, and Mendelian randomization, and six is pathology. They have all been contorted to appear at first blush to support the idea of the lipid hypothesis, whereas in reality, each one of them provide weak and heterogeneous data that could be seized upon by a pseudoscientific optimist to mean that fat and cholesterol cause heart disease, whereas in reality, they just don't. The typical proto-conversation with an ardent supporter of this axiom follows this pattern, which I have paraphrased from a recent exchange I had on Reddit. The dingus says, when LDL is low, improving HDL adds no benefit. And to which I replied the Dave Feldman response, when triglyceride and HDL are good, adding LDL associates with better outcomes. The dingus then replies, you can't say added because there's no causal relationship. I, there's a certain irony to that statement. And then proceeds to present genetic data showing that Genetic predisposition to higher LDL associates with worse outcomes. Um, I will then reply uh, that the genetic predisposition is not an interchangeable with a dietary modification. So lipoproteins are involved with endotoxin disposal. So a disturbed lipoprotein metabolism results in elevated toxins, endotoxins, and elevated LDLC. And then the dingus says, we're talking about genes without confounders, which is, unfortunately, we really just can't assume that an arbitrary gene affects only one thing. But I responded that that was a misunderstanding. I haven't even started complaining about gene locus pleiotropy. I'm talking about the functionality of the system itself. So I provided a paper talking about pleiotropy of genes and on the, uh, the lipoprotein system's role in clearing endotoxins. And then they kind of freak out. They'll be like, well, that's only one paper. There are 50 genes. You haven't presented enough papers. Single studies don't prove anything. It's the consistency between the almighty six pillars that show that LDL is causal. And this conversation will, the same sort of pattern will repeat for the other five pillars as I circle and present the, the 75 asterisks next to each pillar of evidence. And then they eventually will just stop talking to me. Just a friendly reminder that like a large quantity of dog shit science does not magically become meaningful if it's homogeneous. It's just a lot of shit. Um, to provide the, the TLDR rundown of each of the six pillars, I want to just provide the asterisk next to them so that, that that's clear. So for epidemiology, as I mentioned in my talk on Houston, risk factor means associated variable. Uh, we are best served by never using the word risk factor because everyone uses it as if it means cause. Epidemiology provides inconsistent and weak results, confounded by inconsistent procedures for quantifying heart disease, which I'll talk more on in a bit. Selection bias results in a lot of weak positive epidemiology being published, but the hazard ratio is too weak to be anything more than a curiosity. If your hazard ratio is below 10, you are not looking at the cause or you have terrible data and need to find better data. 
On animal models, there are simply no animal models that recreate human coronary atherosclerosis. Cholesterol feeding produces xanthomatous lesions that are not consistent with fibrous lesions that we find in adults. The animal models themselves are not consistent with the hypothesis that lipid drives atherosclerosis. Uh, one key example is that there are two breeds of pigeons that have identical LDL levels. One gets atherosclerosis and one doesn't when subjected to identical conditions. The one that does get atherosclerosis will get atherosclerosis even on a purely grain diet without cholesterol feeding. Velikin pointed out that it's very clear that the macromolecular structure of the artery is what defines the susceptibility to atherosclerosis. It is also possible to get a fibrofatty atherosclerotic lesion in a rabbit aorta by just attacking it with a catheter or even injecting endotoxins, as I'll get to in a bit. Um, dietary interventions. There are only two dietary intervention studies that have mortality data available, the Minnesota Coronary Experiment and the Sydney Diet Heart Study. The former showed no difference when PUFA was substituted for saturated fat, with actually a trend towards harm that suggested that if the trial were continued, it would have shown harm, statistically significantly. And the latter showed uh, actually statistically significant harm from substituting safflower oil for existing dietary fat. Some scientists led by C.E. Ramsden came up with a new hypothesis, like backwards-facing, whilst they kind of crossed their fingers with just a hint of, like, ass-covering, Namely, that the reason that safflower oil resulted in higher mortality in those two studies was due to the lack of omega-3, and they hypothesized that any oil with a slightly higher amount of uh, omega-3 would have an opposite effect. They substantiated this with a lot of statistical guesstimating based upon attempting to extrapolate the non-existent mortality data from coronary mortality data. I find this just highly questionable because it would not capture unintended mortality harm from the intervention. So, four is drug and non-drug lipid-lowering therapies. There are no lipid-lowering therapies that extend life. Some drugs that lower lipids don't do anything, like evacitrapib, um, there is no association between lipid reduction and benefit in these drugs. Uh, studies have shown that statins function through immune pleiotropy by comparing TLR4, SNNPs, and the relative benefit. I talked about that in my Houston talk. People often argue that Colossal phase three studies they run are not powered to detect mortality changes, which is hilarious because they are admitting that even in their wildest dreams, the anticipated mortality benefit is too small to be reliably observed in a trial of thousands of participants over multiple years. Genetic studies, genome-wide associational studies, and Mendelian randomization, they're confounded. The largest associations in GWAS are with immune locuses, which don't really support the lipid hypothesis per se, but it does support the idea that lipids are somehow tangentially involved in atherogenesis, which I would definitely concede. Um, pathology, nobody has yet been able to take a crayon and explain to me how a concentration of a particular protein in the blood can cause a problem several layers of tissue away. We believe that the concentration of lipoproteins in the artery wall is rather independent of the concentration in the blood because active mechanisms regulate the movement of lipoproteins. I'll cover this more in a second. So, the strongest avenue for understanding this disease is a back-to-basics approach or pathology. Epidemiology has some utility, but only when the effect size is large enough, i.e. I'm expecting to see greater than 10 hazard ratio. And yes, studies like that do exist. Weaker hazard ratios tell you you're looking at something pretty far away from the causal vector. Um, the way I 
actually got started on this path was to ask some basic questions uh, like, what is the concentration of LDL supposed to be in the arterial tissue? What is in an atherosclerotic plaque? What percentage of cholesterol in an atherosclerotic plaque is esterified? Confusingly, the answers to these questions were nowhere to be found on the internet. This observation was conspicuous to me. I have kind of a keen nose for bullshit. And basically the way this works is if I'm a budding pseudoscientist trying to bolster an axiom, any evidence supporting my axiom gets trumpeted from the hilltops, and any that doesn't gets a passing blog post labeling it a paradox and is never discussed again and tossed in the garbage bin down the hall. I became suspicious that the high-quality pathology on heart disease would not support the lipid axiom, and it didn't take me long to confirm this suspicion. I started with a 1980 conference proceeding referenced by Malcolm Kendrick, which admitted several observations from basic pathology which quote-unquote challenged the existing hypothesis. These were just basic observations about the concentration of lipoproteins in early gelatinous lesions being less than serum. From there, uh, I saw reference Konstantin Velikin, a Romanian pathologist with over 250 peer-reviewed articles on heart disease, and I printed out the 15 or so published in Atherosclerosis Journal and also ordered his book on Amazon, which was being discarded by a medical library and had only been apparently checked out like three times in its 30-year tenure there. The book presented kind of the lowest level bullshit overview of heart disease I've ever seen, though several people questioned the validity of old sources on heart disease, kind of an insinuation that makes my blood boil because it turns out there were actually smart people alive during the 1980s. Um, anyways, I respond with the following. One, as best I can discern, no substantive discovery has occurred within the mainstream atherosclerosis community since 1989. Every argument I have ever heard made by a lipidologist appeared in this book in 1989, with far more detail and analysis than anything I've seen elsewhere, and with a far more rational evaluation of the opposing evidence. And two, if anything, many observations listed within this book have been forgotten by a community that doesn't seem to be particularly interested in doing rigorous and effective science on this topic. Almost every single page is filled with gems on the disease. Even some of the statements he makes follow from a straightforward elementary deduction they're illuminating, which I think says more about the quality of this field than the book uh, per se. But it's hard to overstate the extent of the dumpster fire in atherosclerosis research from epidemiology to pathology. It, it unfortunately goes all the way down. First, we don't have a definition for the disease because the disease is heterogeneous enough that no single articulation can encompass it. Just to clarify, trying to define heart disease with next to no comprehension would be like trying to define an infection without knowing that a bacteria caused the problem, and you'd kind of walk around and look at the result of the infection on 10,000 different tissue and cell types, and you'd comment on the effect there and finding all sorts of bits and bobs and signaling molecules and talking about them in millions of papers and blog posts. And to make matters worse in atherosclerosis, we have a wrong hypothesis about what was actually going on and trying to shove a square peg in a round hole. I mean, actually, it's not really even a square peg. It's more of like a two-dimensional sheet of paper in a three-dimensional round hole because the hypothesis doesn't even explain large swaths of the disease. So the landscape in atherosclerosis is full of exceedingly myopic research that seems the product of our academic system. People look at like one itty-bitty mechanism for one function and then they try to talk for like pages about all the possible ways that this 
itty-bitty iota could be the most important thing since sliced bread when it comes to atherosclerosis. Needless to say, on the balance of probability, the one thing they happened to investigate being the linchpin of the disease is effectively zero. Far more likely, it is one, a mechanism that only works in a test tube when you pour a concentrated solution over cultured cells. Two, a mechanism that may act in the body but has a trivial effect on and or relevancy to the desired outcome of atherogenesis. Or three, it's a mechanism that is associated with the problem but not the root cause of the problem, either it's tangentially or downstream of the problem. Moreover, there are many other ways to mess this up when you're being myopic. There are The more we research, the clearer it is that atherogenesis is a pathology that involves multiple subspecialties of medicine, namely nutrition, gastroenterology, immunology, pulmonology, cardiology, and lipidology. None of those specialties talk to each other. They have different conferences, different journals, different bigwigs and eats. Generalists do not seem to exist in our medical system. Thus, if a problem spanned multiple specialties, particularly in a nuanced way, you can understand that we may fail to generate and support an adequate hypothesis, and we're suspicious that's what happened in atherosclerosis. The problems start way at the beginning. When we try to identify a disease, we dig into pathology. This is basically a very experienced scientist who looks at the disease, usually dead tissue from someone who has been run over by a bus, died of a heart attack, or in some circumstances, tissue that's removed during a surgery like coronary artery bypass. There's a couple of things we have to do. We have to define what is normal. This may sound trivial, but it is actually very complex in a disease like atherosclerosis, where we have tons of changes that span decades, literally starting from a fetus, and it may not be necessarily clear what is a normal amount of thickening versus a pathological amount of thickening in a fetal intima. To make matters worse, there are certain characteristics that are somewhat unique to man. Man actually has a substantially thicker intima, the inner layer of the artery wall, than our next closest evolutionary cousin, so comparing the characteristics of an animal model may not be adequate to represent man. We also have to capture the full extent of the abnormalities. This may also sound trivial at first, but as we get into the, the weeds, the problem mushrooms in complexity, many studies on atherosclerosis rank its progression by a visual inspection of an open artery, looking at the inner surface. So, what happens when the abnormalities are limited to the inside of the arterial wall? Moreover, many pathologists rely on macroscopic sudenophilic lesions, which are lesions both visible from an unaided visual inspection of the artery, remember these are three-dimensional, so things can be hidden beneath the inner layer, that are also identifiable with a stain that marks fat only and would miss a lipid-free lesion, a careful examination reveals five discrete types of lipid-free early lesions which are entirely missed by lower-quality pathology work. So, moreover, many pathologists don't even explore the full coronary arterial tree, thus missing disease in vessels that supply the conduction system of the heart. It should probably be intuitive that investigators need to be looking for the same disease. What happens when some investigators aren't looking at the same disease? Can we reliably compare studies of atherosclerotic incidents across countries if pathologists use different criteria? I'll answer that question for you, no. And once I understood that many pathologists define disease by the appearance of fatty lesions, totally ignorant of lipid-free lesions, it became a lot more clear to me how an axiom like the cholesterol axiom could proliferate, pun intended, 
throughout the medical community, and it could further become more intuitive why higher quality pathologists like Konstantin Velikin would disagree with the mainstream hypothesis. It was very evident to him that the hypothesis couldn't explain all the changes, although it should be evident to anyone who has examined epidemiology in even a cursory fashion by the weak hazard ratios. Uh, Velikin actually pointed out that the technology to detect lipid came earlier and remained better than the technology required to measure other macromolecules within the atherosclerotic plaque, further reinforcing the idea that weak pathology drove the incorrect axiom. So suddenly we have answers to some questions. For example, why is it that all textbooks consider the fatty streak to be the only precursor of advanced lesions when no evidence supports that idea? Namely, one, the obviously different pathology, it's xanthomatis versus fibrous. Two, the lack of any convincing series of photographs to show transitional states between the two lesion types demonstrated in any paper ever. And three, the absence of a producer-product relationship in the incidence, quantity, and time frame in the respective quantities of each lesion type. In the coronary artery, fatty streaks actually appear five to eight years after the first fibromuscular plaques and gelatinous lesions. Not really sure how we missed that. It's moderately egregious that the textbooks all show fatty streaks as the universal precursor lesion, but the answer to this question is suddenly obvious. With a pathologist's only tool being the identification of lipid accumulation via Sudan stain, the only visible early lesions are xanthomatous ones, and all other lipid-free lesions are simply ignored. So the mainstream community has an unsubstantiated obsession with fatty streaks, However, the high-quality pathologists have suggested that the most important early lesion is a gelatinous lesion, a subclass of the lesion which the cardiovascular pathology textbook straight up admits is both poorly understood and utterly unexplained by mainstream theories of atherogenesis. To make this problem worse, epidemiological surveys rely on macroscopic identification, and gelatinous lesions in children cannot be detected by just looking at the artery. Per E.B. Smith in Atherosclerosis 6, Although the gelatinous lesions are probably the most significant early lesions, their measurement on an epidemiological scale presents serious difficulties. It should go without saying, therefore, that a vast majority of the existing epidemiology proceeds totally ignorant of the most important early lesion type. This would be really funny if it weren't so sad. Moreover, many investigators show a lack of a correlation between the accumulation of lipid and the progression of the disease. If lipid is the cause... Lipids should accumulate first, and then the disease should appear. The existence of lesions lacking in lipid accumulation, or with less lipid than serum, completely invalidates the idea that concentration of lipid drives the disease. Further still, when lipid does accumulate, many other large macromolecules accumulate simultaneously, and even in the same ratio, suggesting that a redistribution in tissue water drives the accumulation of macromolecules. This is why... So many high-quality investigators consider accumulation to be a secondary characteristic of disease, and proliferation and response to injury to be the first and primary. A few of the other one million hypotheses on the lipid axiom postulate that modification of LDL is the problem, yet a realistic assessment of the situation and mechanisms suggests that lipoproteins play an intimate role in the immune system and the disposal of things like oxidized lipids, cholesterol, and endotoxins. That's why LDL receptors have a greater affinity for modified LDL, to remove and dispose of it once the LDL has bound to bad things in the blood. And a couple more of the 1 million hypotheses on the lipid axiom postulate that response to retention drives atherogenesis. 
I've already explained that retention does not precede or correlate with atherogenesis, which disproves that hypothesis, but moreover, in the later stage, there has never been an adequate elucidation of what governs either the movement of lipoproteins or the retention of lipoproteins. There is a strong precedent for the accumulation of lipid in damaged tissue throughout a variety of diseases, think fatty liver disease, which suggests that such accumulation, again, is a secondary characteristic of atherogenesis. Moreover, how can the concentration of lipoproteins in the serum drive a disease several layers of tissue away between the intima and the media? How dependent is the concentration of lipoproteins in the layers of the artery wall on the concentration of lipoproteins in serum? One of the key observations is the existence of substantially different concentration of lipoproteins in the intima, about double the concentration of serum by E.B. Smith in 1977. Combined with the existence of active transport like transcytosis and the impermeability of healthy endothelium, this suggests that the concentration of lipoproteins in the intima is substantially independent of the concentration in the serum, which means that the ball is in the court of the lipid axiom. There must be a comprehensive and adequate explanation of the specific mechanisms that link the serum concentration of lipoproteins with the progression of atherogenesis. The mere existence of plausibility, i.e. a test tube oxidized LDL makes a cell do something when you pour it on top, with weak epidemiology, i.e. people with high LDL have a 1.5-fold increased incidence of myocardial infarction in one population and a 0.9 relative risk or a reduction of MI in this other population, does not sufficiently rule out the possibility that the association with LDL is a downstream effect of a dysregulation in metabolism, particularly when it is well known that dyslipidemia seems to result from metabolic syndrome. Uh, Velikin said, again, this is straightforward elementary deduction, the accumulation of lipoproteins in the tissue is a result of dysregulation in the flow of lipoproteins in compared with the flow of lipoproteins out. He had a remarkable way of saying very simple and intuitive things that were yet somehow illuminating given the low quality of the field of atherosclerosis research. But what would govern such a dysregulation? Does it make sense that a 30% increase in serum concentration would drive accumulation? Or does it make sense that a more nuanced aspect of the affinity of the tissue would drive it? In order for a relatively small change in LDL concentration to drive a disease, there would have to be a substantial nonlinearity to the system. Such nonlinearity has never been adequately illuminated. How a small increase in relative concentration could drive such a substantial increase in disease progression? Uh, one counter suggests that the healthy concentration of LDL is close to 30 milligrams per deciliter, but there is relatively little data suggesting that such a concentration is achievable by a population on any reasonable diet. Moreover, diets which seem to attain these low LDL levels are not consistent with our evolutionary past, during which we were apex predators judging by stable isotope analysis of nitrogen ratios. So there's a further monkey wrench in the LDL hypothesis. Pathology reveals that a lesion can develop in as little as 1 to 3 years and progress to an advanced complicated lesion in as little as 3 to 5 years. The LDL axiom fans use lifetime burden to develop a characterization of the disease which is consistent with a small difference in concentration modulating the disease progression over a very long period. So basically small changes in LDL drive a larger change when you integrate those over 50 years. But how applicable is lifetime burden if lesions of clinical significance can develop in such a short time frame? It's not all that accurate, in my opinion. And to be clear, none of this data 
precludes the possibility that in some cases, the LDL levels in serum modulate the rate of progression in advanced disease. However, to show that's the case, you'd have to show that the availability and concentration of LDL was the limiting factor in progression. LDL Axiom fans like to trumpet that 30 milligrams per deciliter is sufficient to saturate all the LDL receptors. Therefore, would a change from 130 milligrams per deciliter down to 99 meaningfully affect progression? And moreover, if the major factor governing the accumulation of LDL is the tissue affinity for LDL, then the idea of reducing serum concentration makes far less sense than trying to look upstream and fix the cause which is damaging the tissue and causing it to abnormally grab onto lipids, just the same as a ketogenic diet can reverse fatty liver. In the recent ApoB Causes Atherosclerosis Triumph of Simplicity paper, they explained that ApoB causes atherosclerosis via its retention. However, the paper didn't actually do the lipid axiom very many favors because it clarified that the rate of lipoprotein flux and movement through the tissue didn't vary between healthy and abnormal sites, and that the retention itself or some aspect of the affinity of tissue to bind lipoproteins resulted in the accumulation. This doesn't support the hypothesis that serum concentration of lipoproteins substantially drives atherogenesis. And I'd also add the implausibility of a hypothesis that small concentration differences in an endogenously synthesized metabolite drive disease. This doesn't really make all that much sense, particularly when the lipoprotein is so highly conserved evolutionarily. And there's one other thing I'll warn you of in this field. Circular cause? There's a great pandemic of people like PhD candidates that obsess over like one iota of the metabolism or disease, and then they, they postulate something like, one, atherosclerosis is an immune-driven disease, two, my little fun molecule drives atherosclerosis through these pro-inflammatory mechanisms I found by pouring the fun molecule over some cells in a test tube, three, inflammation drives more synthesis of my fun molecule, and then this process kind of repeats in a big old cycle, and that is a cause of atherosclerosis. We only need to concoct some novel therapeutic to interrupt this feedback loop. This vignette highlights the reason that I think pluricausality is the death of effective research on this topic. At the end of the day, there is a primary mechanistic pathway that drives atherogenesis by the Pareto principle. It is not possible for one billion separate mini-causes to drive the disease in different people at different times and result in a nearly identical end result. Again, the probability is infinitely higher that a random molecule I picked out of the molecule storage hat is unrelated to atherogenesis uh, than it is part of the key mechanistic pathway or the crux of the disease. The hypothesis that atherosclerosis happens perhaps infinitely diffusely, i.e. by like whatever I pull out of my hat, permits a lot of grant money to be wasted, but very little progress. As a general rule of thumb, I think you have to approach the disease bearing in mind the following points. One, the disease would have close to zero mortality when eating an evolutionary diet. Two, the cause of the disease must be a substantial dysregulation in the body driven by external lifestyle forces. Thus, again, a lipoprotein which is synthesized endogenously and has strong evolutionary conservation seems like a poor candidate to explain this disease. In hindsight, it becomes clear how a confluence of bad food availability data, vegan ideology promulgated by various non-scientific and religious influences, and poor quality pathology and related research could make this hypothesis sound compelling to an optimistic pseudoscientist. I can empathize with that perspective, 
but we cannot continue to humor it. So for this reason, we need to find the cause or the primary pathway. And to do this, we need to cover the salient characteristics of the disease and talk about what aspects of lifestyle, particularly nutrition, could result in an internal environment conducive to atherogenesis. I'll cover that in episode two. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Root Causing Health Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. Also visit us online at rootcausinghealth.com to learn more. And please consider supporting our research on Patreon. Patreon.